All right, we got an amazing show for you today, everybody. Circle CEO and co-founder Jeremy Allaire joins us to talk Circle, USDC, Tether, the entire stablecoin landscape, and much more. But first, I'm going to break down Apple's event from yesterday. We're going to talk all about the new M1 chips and the new MacBook Pros, the demise of the touch bar, and the return of all of our ports. Dongle life is over. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by... Fiverr Business is a modern workplace for the digital world. Their team of dedicated business success managers help match you with the best freelancers for your team. Right now, you can sign up for Fiverr Business free for the first year and save 10% on your purchase with promo code JASON. That's F-I-V-E-R-R dot com slash business and use promo code JASON. Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. And Drata. Don't let requests for SOC 2 compliance reports slow down your business. Use Drata to stay ahead of the curve. Go to drata.com slash twist for 15% off. Apple yesterday announced two M1 chips and a superpowered, like massively superpowered 16-inch MacBook Pro at their Unleashed event. Apple announced two new chips. You know they came out the M1 about 11 months ago, November 2020. And that uh, chip... Uh, perform twice as fast as the latest PC laptop chips while using less power. And that is the key for a laptop, isn't it? You want more power, but less power consumption. So you want to be able to process more graphics while not draining your battery. Specialized chips uh, will do better at this task as opposed to general chips. And we are very far into the silicon race here. We're in the fifth or sixth decade of making these chips. Uh, yeah, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. So, you know, we're we're now into the sixth a decade of making these kind of chips for PCs. And everybody knows that the key issue is battery life that we all contend with. And because Apple was building off of over a billion iOS devices, they really got to optimize chips, and they went full stack. If Apple is not dependent on Intel or AMD or other chip manufacturers, it makes it a stronger and more valuable company. And that's what you see over time. Companies build full stack. Tesla, one of the greatest examples of this, they make their own battery packs. They don't take them from Panasonic or whoever uh, anymore. I think in the beginning, they were using actually Panasonic batteries in the Roadster. And so if you want to have a company that is less uh, dependent on third parties and you want to capture more of the margin in your product, why give that margin to other players in the space? Because they have to make their $100 or... $200 $200 off of a chip. That's why PCs, if you had an Intel chip versus an AMD versus some, you know, generic chip, they could have a difference of 100 200 bucks. So there is a financial incentive here, but there's also how do we make the best possible experience for our consumer base? What does their consumer base do? Well, they're not gamers as much as they are video editors and creators and creatives. That's always been who the the Mac ecosystem goes after. Why? Because if you're a creator, you appreciate something beautiful. It was Steve Jobs' passion. And those people who are creatives are price insensitive. They're price insensitive. If you are making content on your computer, you're a video editor, you're a screenplay writer, an author, you're making money making content. This is the content creation device. So that's part of the secret. You're not just using it for email. If you're using it for email, yeah, buy a Chromebook. 
you're, you're going to be able to spend 500 bucks. And there's no difference between doing email on a $3,000 machine or a 500 big difference doing video editing, big difference doing uh, photography, etc. And so let's talk a little bit about these two new chips. One's called the M1 Pro one's called the M1 Max confusing branding here, but you see where they're going. They're going to have three chips. The chips will have different uh, profiles in terms of power here. You can see, I, I guess that's the physical representation in terms of size. And that is indicative of what they're capable of doing. And uh, here's a 40 second clip explaining the specs of the M1 Max chip specifically 39 seconds. I'll see you on the other side. M1 Max starts with a much higher bandwidth on chip fabric and doubles the memory interface once again. This delivers up to 400 gigabytes per second of memory bandwidth. That's twice M1 Pro and six times M1. This wider memory interface lets the M1 custom package support up to 64 gigabytes of unified memory. And its die has a staggering 57 billion transistors. That's 1.7 times M1 Pro and 3.5 times M1. It's the largest chip we've ever built by far. M1 Max has the same powerful 10-core CPU complex of M1 Pro and doubles the GPU to a massive 32 cores, giving M1 Max up to four times faster GPU performance than M1. All right, so as you can see, it's uh, massively, massively uh, faster and more powerful. And they are using less power than like these eight core PC chips. Uh, so to get the same amount of PC graphics, you can do it, but it's going to have a higher uh power profile which means your machine is going to have the battery die very uh, quickly and in an april uh earnings call uh tim cook warned that the global chip shortage would impact apple's m1 chips and the products associated with them according to apple rumors all apple chips including the new m1s are manufactured at tsmc if you're wondering what the t stands for it's taiwan and if you've been listening to all in or this podcast we had Jacob on recently to talk about Taiwan. Been watching the news, you know that Taiwan has a bunch of Chinese airplanes flying around in the South China Sea. You have military maneuvers with the big six, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, the UK, the United States, and South Korea. I think those are the big six in the South Pacific. Uh, and they are, of course, uh, now trying to at least let China know that we're not going to let you roll Taiwan. And I think the Taiwan uh, Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, is a big part of this. If you just think about that one company, $500 billion company, produces a lot of the world's silicon. It is, if you want to talk about supply chain interruption, if China takes over uh, TSMC and they take over Taiwan by, you know, they take over Taiwan and by extension, they might just seize TSMC. And you're saying to yourself, that's crazy. It, governments don't just seize companies. It, isn't that what they just did in China? So a lot of what's happening here in terms of the independence of Taiwan could have something to do with TSMC. As part of that, Japan is subsidizing a $7 billion plant that TSMC is building. Sony's an investor in it as well uh, in Japan. And TSMC is also building a plant, I believe, in Arizona here in the United States. And so what we're going to see is different governments spending money with TSMC to move their factories to uh, secure locations. This would be a great thing for Australia, New Zealand, uh, Korea, other countries to do. If we can make TSMC a global company with a global footprint of factories, that would make the supply chain much more resilient and everybody has uh, a horse in that race, including China. Where's Apple in all this? 
Apple has $250 billion in cash last time I checked well over 200 billion. Why, why doesn't Apple just buy TSMC? I, I guess that would be considered a, uh, a real uh, hostile act by the Chinese government. And uh, why doesn't Apple give $7 billion to TSMC to build a plant, you know, in Vietnam or Korea or somewhere else? Again, uh, the Chinese philosophy of war and interactions is just saying that Taiwan is its own sovereign country, that would be considered according to the doctrines in China, uh, an act of war. Based on what I've read, if you want to watch the Jacob Helberg episode, it was episode 1303 just last week, and a great new book from him, so totally uh, worth watching. When you're trying to nail an important project, you're going to need some extra help, right? You're trying to move fast. You're a startup. Well, Fiverr Business puts a world of expert freelancers at your fingertips so you can get any project across the finish line and be really proud of your work. Plus, you'll get everything you need to seamlessly integrate your new team members into your workflow. We love Fiverr here at Launch. We've hired a bunch of researchers to find local founders to invite to different launch events. That was one of my secret weapons. So stop wasting your time searching for creative talent. Just leave it to Fiverr Business. Their team of dedicated business success managers help match you with the best talent for your team. There's no more endless guessing and interviews and people disappearing. That was always my problem because freelancers were so, so unreliable. Well, not anymore. Use Fiverr for business and you will not have that problem. Plus, you can save and share your favorite freelancers for future projects. So find the right freelancers you need to give your next project just the boost it needs to finish strong. Right now, you can sign up for Fiverr Business absolutely free for the first year. Get one year free and save 10% on your purchase of Fiverr Business with the promo code Jason. Yes, that's right, J-A-S-O-N. Just go to fiverr.com slash business, F-I-V-E-R-R dot -R com slash business, F-I-V-E-R-R dot -R com slash business, and don't forget to use that promo code Jason. 100% of Apple's iPhone, iPads, and Mac products are made in China and Taiwan, if you weren't already aware of that or you couldn't guess. So uh, as part of uh, these new chips being announced, they're obviously going to go in computers. We didn't get a new Mac Mini. I was kind of disappointed in that because that's become the standard that I uh, use with a lot of folks on my team. Uh, we'll have Dell computers uh, for the business side. Some of the creatives have uh, Mac Minis. And then we use Dell monitors. I find that combination is quite nice. I'm using it right now because a lot of the software I use, I need the Mac OS operating system. And uh, let's take a look at these new models. Just here's a quick 27 second clip of the new MacBook Pro models. This is the all new, completely redesigned MacBook Pro. And it comes in two sizes, a 16 inch model, and for the first time, a compact yet immensely powerful 14 inch model. Let's start with the keyboard. Users value the full height function row on the standalone Magic Keyboard, and we've brought it to the MacBook Pro. The physical keys replace the touch bar, bringing back the familiar tactile feel of mechanical keys that pro users love. I mean, it's so hysterical. Literally, the touch bar, which was introduced back in 2016, has been absolutely hated universally by Mac users, especially the more advanced users. It's kind of a silly, gimmicky uh, concept. The idea that the keyboard would change based on the app you're using is clever. The problem is, in practice, it doesn't work. 
there are keyboards out there that are specialized for different uses. uses. So there is an Avid keyboard, uh, as many of you who are in the video editing space know, if you're using an Avid workstation, you might have an Avid. And it, you know, it just shows you what the, the quick keys are without you having to look at them or memorize them. But here's the here's the rub. If you're an expert user, it's supposed to appeal to you. You already know that. You already know the keys. You're an expert. You're working 10 hours a day in Avid or Premiere or in Notion or in Slack or in Superhuman. You've memorized you've memorized it. It's your job to memorize the quick keys. So it's really like for beginners to train them what the quick keys are. And then anybody who's good at typing doesn't look at their keyboard. I don't look at my keyboard when I'm typing. I'm an expert. I'm a writer. I, I should know these things. So uh, this is a, uh, I think, a concession by Apple, who when Steve Jobs said, hey, listen, trust me, you don't need a keyboard on the iPhone, uh, you'll get used to it, the software will get better. He literally said that to me, because he saw I was using a BlackBerry at one of the code events, or uh, back then it was called the D event at Wall Street Journal uh, was running it. And I was like, what about the keyboard? He's like, just trust it, Jason. It's, uh, I know I'm name dropping here. But he said, just trust it, you know, it's, it's tiny things, but it will know what word you're typing. And if you hit the wrong key it's going to fix it automatically he was basically explaining autocorrect before autocorrect had a name uh, and that's and that's pretty true isn't it i mean you do get some autocorrect problems but uh this is apple saying we're going to listen to our pro customers and the pro customers have felt for close to a decade that apple was ignoring them everybody wants a tower everybody wants giant monitors everybody wants ports who's a pro and apple's just like no you want simple. And they basically, this is the problem when a founder uh, leaves a company or tragically dies uh, and passes away like Steve Jobs did. Tim Cook is incredible as a CEO in terms of ringing the register, the supply chain, uh, you know, and, and many facets of the job, right? You can't deny him that. But when it comes to innovation, the two most innovative products out of Apple have been the watch and the AirPods. Uh, the watch took them six versions to make something that I would consider okay, like I, I'm actually using it, I gave up my Fitbit after 10 years. And I would say it's okay. You know, I don't think it's like, incredible. I'm not like impressed with my watch the same way I went with my phone or iPad. And then the AirPods, I think were pretty much the best product uh, they've created since Steve Jobs uh, passed away. And that means they haven't built another franchise. The iPhone as a percentage of revenue has gone down, services have gone up. So Apple money printing machine, but no innovative, uh, you know, game changing, let's just say put a dent in the universe, as jobs would say, there's no put a dent in the universe product. What would those products be? Well, a car would put a dent in the universe if they made a great one, pretty hard to do, we'll see. Uh, and the other thing would obviously be VR or AR glasses, that would really put a dent in the universe or building an actual television set, which, uh, you know, many people know, Apple did work on not an Apple TV box, but imagine like a Sony replacement TV. And I think they realized what there was really not a great business to be in. So looking at this, the touch bar was hated. So they got rid of it. And there's a lot of interesting commentary on Twitter over this. They've also uh, put back all the ports. So this dongle life that we've all had to live where USB-C to USB-2, I guess was the old one, USB-C to your memory card reader, USB-C to Ethernet, USB-C to HDMI, USB-C to whatever feature <laughs> you wanted to have. And also, remember, uh, everybody loved MagSafe. When you're at a conference, when you're working in the, you know, in the library or, you know, in a co-working space, somebody trips on your cable, computer goes flying. 
Apple made a big deal of that. We have MagSafe. Your your computer, your three thousand dollar computer is never going flying across the library. Amazing. Then they took it away. Why'd you take it away? Oh, we wanted to go to USB C. Well, that's great, but we we just spent all this money on MagSafe's. And then anybody who has Apple's at their house knows if you have five old MacBook laptops, you've got five different power adapters. Just really, really terrible job on standardization, but then taking away a loved feature. Uh, we had the same thing happen with the iPhone when they took away the headphones. Here's Ryan Block, a friend of mine and uh, essentially co-founder of Engadget uh, with Peter Rojas and uh, the rest of the Weblogsing team. 2015, we removed your computer's connectivity. Courage! 2020, we completely ruined your computer's main output. Our latest keyboard is better than ever. 2021, we restored your computer's connectivity. That's what pros need. Apple profiles in courage. Uh, Phil Baker says only Apple can take features away and call it progress then years later add those same features back and call it progress now that would be the reality distortion field a uh twitter user named team Nah just tom had an interesting reply to baker the touch bar was obviously not intended to take features away it was intended to provide more utility sometimes big bets don't pan out as the saying goes no one to hold them no one to fold them many companies don't know how to fold them due to ego or inertia and the ports is the most polarizing piece of this uh and here is Apple explaining uh, what they've done. I'll see you on the other side of this 58 second clip. Having a wide range of ports can make life a lot easier for pros. So I'm excited to share that we're adding ports to the new MacBook Pro. On one side, there's an HDMI port for conveniently connecting to displays and TVs, a Thunderbolt 4 port, which connects to high-speed peripherals, and an SD card slot enabling fast access to media. On the other side, the headphone jack now has advanced support for high-impedance headphones, and there are two more Thunderbolt 4 ports for a total of three in the system. And yes, MagSafe is coming back to the MacBook Pro. MagSafe 3 has a new design that supports more power into the system, and you can still charge via the Thunderbolt ports. Display support is better than ever as well. With M1 Pro, you can connect up to two Pro Display XDRs. And with M1 Max, you can connect up to three Pro Display XDRs and a 4K TV all at the same time. So this is critically important. Right now, I have a three-monitor setup, two beautiful Dells turned horizontal. That's why you see me look on the left. I look at Slack. Over here, I'm looking at restreaming your comments. And then here's my teleprompter with a camera, Sony uh, digital SLR. And then over here is like one of those nice little thin, um, you know, laptop monitors. And, um, you know, the ability to have uh, this Mac can only support two monitors. So I had to get an extra box and some software called um, display link manager in order to manage a third monitor. So a lot of people have been cl complaining about this, why can't I have three monitors on my Mac? And it was because of some issues with the chips and the video processing uh, to do high res monitors. Apparently, now they fixed those and they've brought back all the jacks which are you know amazing so they're claiming this m1 max 16 inch macbook pro has up to 21 hours of battery life uh, while watching videos and up to 14 hours while browsing the web uh, directionally correct in my experience when i was in italy and i went to the beach to write the book for a week uh, i'll give an update on that at some point <laughs> it's going really well publisher loves the book agent loves the book concept looks like we'll uh, work on a deal in the next two weeks and then pick a date so I'm going to go with my same publisher, I think. Um, I just love HarperCollins business. So I don't even know if I'm going to auction it out again this time. I think I'll just go with the, uh, if they make a reasonable offer, I'll go with the folks um, who did the last book because they were great to work with. 
And uh, when I went to the beach and I was typing and doing stuff, yeah, it would last all day, basically. And uh, if your monitor is a little bit brighter, it might last half as long. So I think they they do take into this bringing the battery down to 60 or 70% when they make those. Uh, it's not full, full brightness of your monitor. If you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps in being a great entrepreneur. Startups should look no further than Embroker, E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R. Embroker's technology saves you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower, and you're going to get better coverage than incumbents, and you go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. When you work with Embroker, instead of business insurance incumbents, you're not dealing with these large, slow corporations, and the sign up takes just days, not weeks. The process is completely transparent. There is no opaque pricing. And I'm going to quickly explain two crucial types of insurance you need. Cyber insurance. What does it cover? It covers hacks. They happen all the time. And you need to have coverage for that. Plus, D&O insurance. This is for your directors, people on your board, and officers, the top five or six people of the company. If somebody does something dumb and you get sued, you need to protect the directors and officers because they're responsible. And even if you don't do something dumb and somebody still wants to sue you, because people can sue you for any reason, you, they could be wrong, you could be right, it doesn't matter, you need to have the insurance online so you can protect yourself. So, instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups, go to imbroker.com slash twist, E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist, and while you're there, get an extra 10% off by using the offer code twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing program. And the new MacBooks are also being equipped with a 1080p HD webcam for the first time ever, which is double the re uh, resolution of the most recent webcams, which to me seems like, how, how is this taking so long? Like they should have a 4k monitor on these. What, what are they doing? This is something that all Macs should have, they should lead. Uh, and there's other companies that are leading and you can buy third party cameras. That's what I do when I'm doing the show on the road. I'll bring uh I have like a zoom camera or something. And then I just bought another uh, little camera. So I I've been testing a bunch of these different cameras. Uh, sometimes I've even brought a digital SLR with me and a road kit. It's a lot of work to set that up. But sometimes worth it if I go somewhere for a week, like if I go to Tahoe for the week, I I'll, I'll bring my road kit. If I'm just going for two days, I'll bring my laptop and uh, headset. So how much are these going to cost? They're going to be ridiculous. I mean, if you really want to go for it with a 16 inch MacBook Pro, uh, you're looking at three, three grand or so. Uh, and then if you want to put a lot of memory in it, like 64 gigs of memory, which you know, is reasonable for a video editor, uh, 32 gigs, also reasonable for video editor 16 gigs for me, the minimum you need on any laptop to use a, you know, a multi monitor setup with a lot of tabs open. And then you can put two terabytes of storage in this one terabyte of SSD storage, four terabytes or up to eight terabytes, and the max is $6,000. Now that seems crazy. But you know, if you are a developer, and this machine's going to last you two years, three years, you're going to trade it in for half as much. You know, the way I look at this is what is your computing cost per day? So I keep my computers for uh, typically two years. And then I uh, will give them to somebody who doesn't need as much of a power computer, or I'll trade them in I do my phone every year or every other year. And I just take the total cost of the device. So here are $6,000. And, uh, you know, 700 days, right? 365 times two, 730 days. You're looking at whatever that is eight, nine bucks a day. Okay, that's a lot of money, but you're going to give the computer back and you're going to get a $3,000 trade in, let's say 50% trade in. 
So now you're down to four bucks a day. I, I think that's the way to look at these devices. Four bucks a day, if you're getting paid 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 dollars an hour, whatever a creative gets paid, 100 dollars an hour, 500 dollars, who knows, uh, if you're high end, isn't it worth it? And so that's what I would encourage you to do is just take your number of work days, number of days you use a computer. If you only use it five days a week, fine. You know, then it's 500 days into $3,000 or $5,000. And I think a cup of coffee is a pretty good price to pay for your phone. Uh, and maybe, you know, two cups of coffee or one cup of fills is uh, one cup of blue bottle is probably the right price. So uh, I'm definitely going to buy it. I'm definitely going to buy the maximum one, uh, not with storage and memory, but I'll buy the uh, 16 inch and see how it goes. And I'll let you know what I think I'm going to order it uh, probably today. And I'll do the 32 gigs and one terabyte. I really don't need that much storage. What I do is I have a one terabyte external if I ever need it. And I've never needed it. So I'm not storing giant video files. But congratulations to Apple on listening to their customers and giving their customers what they want. Here's another great idea for Apple. Your customers would also like a tower where they can change everything and change the memory. <laughs> In the macbook pro they would also like more monitors so just listen to your customers i mean and i, I don't know i'm, I'm guessing the the, the uh, new iphone 14 <laughs> next year or the year after is going to have the headphone jack back is that what you're going to do to us uh so congratulations to mac on listening to their customers it takes it does take a little bit of courage to say we were wrong we're going to give you reports back we were wrong about the keyboard we were wrong about the touch bar we're just going to give you what you want so yeah, you could buy a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle from Saks for four or five or six grand, or you could buy a new uh, laptop. I've always my whole career invested in technology, uh, much to wife's chagrin of the amount of electronics I have sitting around. But man, if you can make yourself 1% more effective with a device, and you can buy six or seven devices and become six or 7% more effective, that's really worth it. That's really worth it. And man, I, it is so frustrating for me as the tech support person in the house, when my wife doesn't upgrade her phone because I'm responsible for tech support. And I'm just buy the newest one with the most memory <laughs> with the fastest chip with the biggest screen. And let's just 90% of the problems you're going to have are going to be solved. So great job to Apple congratulations and give us the new Mac mini. I think Mac minis are one of the one of the great uh, sleeper sleeper hits over there at uh, Mac. If you've ever had a, a Mac mini, it's just a great device. And you can put them under like I have a, right now. This desk is a um, desk that goes up and down a standing desk and I'm standing. It's a standing desk. Yeah, the ones that go up and down. I got the little controls over here. And uh, my Mac Mini is bolted uh, in a little tray underneath it. All the cables are nice cable managed. And it's just a great aesthetic, right? I love it. All right. Uh, next up on the program is the uh, much uh, questioned and the uh, interview that many people thought would never happen. I knew it would happen. It'd just take a little time. People are busy. But Jeremy Allaire from Circle is on the program. You're going to love this interview. As I predicted, he would be super upfront. As I predicted, he's doing everything by the books. As I predicted, I think uh, USDC is going to become the winner in the stablecoin business. Uh, and that uh, Tether, as we've seen with their fines, they now have another second bigger fine that they've gotten uh, from the government here in the United States. I think Tether is going to get absolutely run over by USDC. So uh, and I don't have a horse in the race. I don't own either of them and I don't have investments in either. Enjoy the interview. In today's startup landscape, committing to security and compliance is vital for growth, and proof of your company's security posture has never been more important. As you scale, you might start to receive more SOC 2 requests from customers, and that's where Drata comes in. 
Strata is an advanced automation platform used by some of the world's leading chief information security officers or CISOs. Strata will help you successfully meet requirements, support enterprise deal flow and continually track compliance. Strata also helps customers easily prepare for and clear SOC 2 and other audits so you can go from zero to audit ready in a matter of weeks. Need more? Take it from Philip Martin, chief security officer at Coinbase. And here's his quote. It became clear to me right away that Drada is an engineering powerhouse. The solution they've developed is well ahead of other market players. Their approach to deep native integrations provides users with the most advanced automation available. So check out Drada's five-star reviews on G2 and see why companies like ClearClo, Smart Recruiter, and The Good Face Project work with Drada for their compliance needs. Twist listeners can get 15% off and waived implementation fees at drata.com slash twist, D-R-A-T-A.com slash twist. All right, next up on the program is serial entrepreneur, Jeremy Allaire. I've met Jeremy, God, when did I meet Jeremy? Probably in the cold fusion days. Definitely uh, caught up with him when he was doing Brightco for just over a decade. And uh, he, of course, was the CTO of Macromedia. Back in the 2001 to 2003 era, he's been working in the tech industry for over two decades, like myself, and he's currently running a company called Circle. You can visit them at circle.com. They've got a collection of businesses, which we'll get into today. And uh, they raised $711 million pre-SPAC. And in July of 2021, uh, they announced that they would be spacking uh, a deal that put the value of Circle at $4.5 billion. Uh, and uh, they raised $450 million in a pipe, yada, yada, yada. And I'm not sure when the SPAC actually goes out. Is that like, is there, is, so welcome to the program, Jeremy. Is there like, yeah. a, when you do a SPAC like Thanks. this, is there a specific date when it comes out? I mean, ba- basically, it's it's sort of like the the opposite of an IPO. And like in an IPO, you like you file your S one and you go through however like six months or whatever of review. And then once it's done, then you do your deal and you raise your money and you become public. With a SPAC, you actually like you do your deal and you raise your money and then you file and you ah. go through that process. And and so it you know uh, you know crypto SPACs, uh, which is a genre. There's like EV toll SPACs and everything else, right? Crypto SPACs are taking around you know, typically like five or six months. So, you know, we, we, we had sort of said end of this year, early next year, um, but it, it, it's sort of just going through the kind of registration process, basically. And as I, uh, from the outside, look at Circle, I know you have the stablecoin USDC, which is uh, obviously uh, very much in the news in relation to Tether and regulation. We'll get into that. You have uh, treasury services and payment services and APIs in the crypto space. And you bought Ryan's company Seed Invest, which does equity crowdfunding. So looking at this collection of products, what is the master plan here? Because when I saw you had invested in Seed Invest and USDC, I think speaks for itself. What is your master plan for these three assets and how they come together? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think, um, you know, what, what, first of all, you know, what drew me into working on, you know, internet finance, as I like to call it. Um, you know, nine years ago or eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, when we got started working on on Circle, was sort of a a belief that you know there was this new infrastructure layer being built um, that was internet native money, internet native financial infrastructure, economic infrastructure, and we got very excited about that and what that would look like in the future. And I think at a high level, believe that 
over time, you know, the representation of, of money, the storage of value, the transmission of value would just become digital currency based. And, and that, you know, secondarily, this bigger idea of programmable money, which was, you know, really ideas on napkins back in early 2013, smart contracts, things like that. But as a technologist, I looked at that and said, I, I can see how that's going to happen. I can see how you're going to have ubiquitous value exchange happening uh, the same way, you know, HTTP brought ubiquitous information exchange or SMTP and SMS and other things brought ubiquitous text, you know, message exchange. These protocols would, would allow for value exchange. And if you have the ability to kind of create financial contracts and have those financial contracts intermediate capital and have that intermediation kind of done by machines on the internet, that you could really begin to rethink the fundamental delivery of financial services. So, you know, what I broadly call the time value of money, the allocation of capital. So that might be someone wants to save money, someone wants to borrow money. You can intermediate those things on these networks and these blockchain networks. And also, you know, ultimately capital formation itself would become more internet native and the ability for people to invest from around the world in an open, democratic, easy to access way and, and the ability for, you know, firms and households to kind of form capital um, would become easier as well as, as more and more, you know, uh, financial infrastructure moved to an internet native um, kind of model. And so big picture, we've always been interested in that kind of transformation. And so when you look at what we're doing now, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of, of really big pieces, which are entirely based around cryptographic money and blockchain networks. So USDC, very clearly, it's crypt cryptographic dollars, and, and we can come back to talk more about that, but really with this goal of establishing a protocol layer for seamless, inexpensive, instant, global you know, value exchange with dollars and eventually other fiat currencies as well. But then you know, building around it are these other things, which is what if I'm a business that wants to store it and I want to connect existing financial networks to it and take traditional payment instruments, but have it all kind of ultimately be based in, in digital currency, uh, or I want to lend it uh, and generate interest from it. The, these transaction and treasury services, as we call them, are all built up around that kind of digital currency core. Seed Invest today is really separate. It stands entirely separate. It is internet-based finance because it is a way for startups uh, and investors to participate in investing behavior entirely on the internet. Um, and, and you know a lot about that and happy, you know, we can talk more about it. But I think eventually those models of crowdfunding um, will become more fully digital and yes. will be intermediated. And crypto-based, I mean. And crypto-based, yeah. So you and I invest in, I don't know, the next Uber and you decide, hey, I need some liquidity. I want to sell half my shares to JCal at this investment. You and I can do a, just a straight private transaction between each other and our, our shares get transferred like any other crypto would. Yeah, like tokenized securities in a sense. And yeah. And, and, and I think the other, you know, thing, there's a lot of exciting ideas out there, which are, you know, you know, NFTs, uh, you know, we mostly think about digital collectibles and, and, and things and, and, and crypto art or whatever, you know, all the, the different applications of NFTs. But Equity is a non-fungible token. There's a fixed number of shares. You can have share in the share register. You've got zero or, or whatever share one through share whatever. And they're non-fungible tokens. And you can imagine a representation of equity as a non-fungible token. And you can imagine a, an equity holder that's got proof of their ownership in an NFT in their digital wallet that could provide them other perks, other ways to 
interact mm. with a brand, to interact with a startup, to be a stakeholder in a slightly different way or a way that extends beyond just I own shares or I have dividend rights or whatever. See, this is a fascinating, um, and I thought we'd start with <laughs> the stable coins, but this is even more fascinating to me personally, yeah. because if you think about it, you have Kickstarter giving rewards, right? And oh, you, you buy the product in advance as a thank you. Maybe we give you early access. Maybe we give you uh, a number on the side of it. This is the seventh one ever made and it becomes a little yeah. more collectible. Maybe we let you come to some events, et cetera, you get a t-shirt. Um, and what you're saying is, hey, you get your NFT and you call it a share, you call it an NFT, whatever. Uh, you paid a dollar for it. We made a million of them. That seed funded the idea for Airbnb. Okay, now Airbnb is worth a billion dollars and those million $1 shares are worth $1,000 each. But they also came with the ability to um, get priority, uh, get a 20% discount on any booking and you get right. priority for uh, the holidays and Christmas. Right, right. And it's cryptographically provable. And th that's really the power here is that I possess this token. It's in a digital wallet and I can, I can use it as a proof. I can mm -hmm. use it as a proof to a commerce application that's interacting with me. That commerce application can say, oh, okay, you're uh, a token holder um, uh, you, you, and you're this particular type of token holder and so on and so forth. So these are mostly just, you know, these are ideas that are floating around right now, but yeah. I think you're seeing experimentation like this happening, um, you know, and I, I think there's, there's definitely work to do on the regulatory side um, here. Um, yeah, you're coming off on the yeah. pass on that one because <laughs> people are buying NFTs now yeah. uh, for one hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, a million dollars, and I think civilians are looking at that and saying, "What?" And then you know, people in the industry are looking at it and saying, "Like, huh? Uh, how does it make sense that an NFT of a bored ape is worth two or three hundred thousand dollars?" Like, what would your response be to a civilian? or just somebody who's in the business, but not in the crypto business or in the business world, they don't understand why are people paying that? What's the answer to that? Why are they well, paying that? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, uh, art, and, 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 and basically, creative intellectual property, you know, there's so much creative intellectual property, you know, music tracks, uh, performances, media, icons, um, you know, poems, whatever, you know, there's lots of creative intellectual property. And I mean, m my high level perspective here is that, um, you know, NFTs represent, for the first time, a way to represent digital and to represent digital intellectual property in a in a in a in a scarce manner and to have a, a monetization model around digital, digital intellectual mm. property sort of we, we used to have like DRM, you surely remember, you know, yeah, digital you know, rights management, right, a, which was oh, it was so awful. annoying. It was really awful, yeah. but but like a, a crypt cryptographically provable kind of ownership over some digital item is actually really powerful. It can be used in a lot of different ways. Now, why are a specific you know a collection of apes, as an example, why are those worth so much? I mean, I, I think this is you know why did a, a series of pieces of art by a particular artist in a particular city become extraordinarily valuable over time? Because they were cultural memes. There was an influence the, uh, of, of, of adorning it, of, of owning it. And I think that's what you're seeing here. You're basically mm. seeing an enormous amount of crypto wealth. There's $2.3 trillion of crypto wealth in the world right now. And you're seeing an enormous amount of crypto wealth. 
And it's a moment in time mm. where the crypto wealthy can exp- can be patrons of what they believe to be powerful memes of the moment, and they can own those memes and own right. them forever. And they actually are speculative, and they can they're they're tradable, and and all the other things that come along with it. Unlike that painting on the wall, there is a liquid market, but it's a really difficult liquid market, uh, you yeah. know, to, to to deal with. So you have both the, the frictionlessness of these markets, uh, as well as uh, I think you know. Uh, 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 these are these are you know ways to value memes uh, and it's crazy and and, uh, and and trade them and, and and the like and so it's you know again it's technically it's just only recently become possible that you can do these kinds of things um, yeah. yeah there's going to have to be a reframing of the accredited investor laws and who gets to buy shares in companies uh, the SEC has been slowly evolving this. There'll be a test at some point you can take, it seems, right. to become an accredited investor. I don't know if you have any updated information on that, but uh, my understanding is that they've been charged with figuring it out this year or next year. Maybe you could speak to accreditation laws and if they did change what the world would look like and, and how much of this hand-wringing would go away. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge topic, right? And, and I think there was progress made on this. Um, you know, last last year, when 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 the um, updates to the exemptions in terms of Reg CF, Reg A plus, kind of came along, there was some, you know, a commitment to work on the accreditation definitions. Um, I don't have specific information around what might come and what it will be and when, but yeah, the the concept of of a test you can take, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's something that I I think it needs a bigger overhaul than that. Clearly. Um, you know the the internet has been so powerful at you know dealing with risk and reputation, right? I mean, I, I think and and the internet's done it through platforms that um, empower everyday people to make a risk based decision based on the the kind of the wisdom of the crowd, if you will. I mean, um, why would I trust someone who's selling something on eBay? Well, eventually there were ways to to deal with the the, the kind of risk um, through. Uh, both community policing as well as ultimately things like machine learning and other data, you know, the the concept that you would just get into a stranger's car and like, or or allow strangers to just come stay in your house or whatever. These yeah. are abs- absurd ideas. And, you know, historically you would have thought, well, you, you know, that's like, that's why we have like a, a formal hospitality industry or that's why we have, you know, uh, you know, certify taxi drivers because we need to have background checks. We need to have all these things. Well, it turns out that you can do these things very, very efficiently over the internet with the data that we have. And I think the same thing kind of applies in this realm of, of investing. And I think it's, it's, it's quite, quite reasonable that people who have the ability to spend the time to learn something and, uh, and, and be educated can make really informed decisions and it doesn't have to do with how wealthy they are. It clearly doesn't have to do with how wealthy they are. Absolutely not. I mean, if, if we use wealth as the example, a person with a trust fund who won the lottery, who, you know, did really good at the track could suddenly become accredited. Yeah. And that's not what we want either. Uh, We would want that person who stumbled into money to also be uh, educated, right? Uh, If you have anybody who was giving their kid a trust fund is like their number one concern is, What are they going to do with this? How educated are they? I'm going to put them through some education. Um, so even the rich are thinking that way. 
um, a sim- we, we have a driver's license test. Yeah. We have a gun licensing test. Why would we, ha- we have a licensing test for cutting hair? Why not have a licensing test that would take you two to 10 hours, yeah. two to 10 days? We, we could pick a, any reasonable number and let people go through it. And, and, you know, I've been teaching this angel university course now. I've done it 20 times. Uh, and I do it every quarter, 500 people come and I teach people, you know, what I've learned about angel investing and it's five hours. And I can tell you they come out of it with a really good understanding of how risky startup investing is and how to mitigate that risk. Right. Um, And other countries don't have accreditation laws. And almost every discussion we have in crypto and the problems people have with it. In fact, my main problem with it is the the crypto folks get a pass. And I'm interested on your uh, feeling on it. Crypto people get a pass on selling shares, calling them tokens, funding companies with them. And then if we try to do the same thing as an angel investor or a syndicate or seed invest does it, we are saddled with regulation and saddled with rules. Yeah. But you can create Solana or you could create Cordano, whatever it is, and just sell a bunch of shares, pay your taxes on it. And now your company's funded through the sale of tokens, which nobody is buying to utilize they're buying them for speculation which is why people buy company shares as well what are your thoughts on that sort of un- what i consider unfairness i don't know what you would consider it but that sort of yeah um, cognitive dissonance in the market right now yeah i mean th- there, there are a lot of um a lot of thoughts on this and, and actually today's an interesting day because you know coinbase just put out a policy uh proposal for effectively a, a, a new registration regime, a new uh, exchange uh, regulation framework that specifically speaks to people who would issue and sell tokens, how they decisions get made about the, the, the markets where those get traded. Um, and I think the, the, the high-level argument is this is sufficiently different from traditional equity securities or other securities that it, it needs a, a specific policy framework, which I happen, okay. to, I happen to agree with that. But I think to get into to, to more of the weeds on this, digital assets um, are very different um, and, and they exist on a spectrum. And they, and, and, and they, what was fascinating about digital assets is that they, they defy clear classification relative to other financial instruments. So you may have a digital asset that in one context very much looks like a security, in another context very much looks like a commodity, and in another context very much looks like a currency. You, you, may, you may have bought it because someone was selling it to you. Uh, you may have bought it because you believe it may go up in value and that a, a engineering team that's working on technology behind it is conducting work to improve it, which that looks like security. But the token itself has utility. It's something that you stake. It's something that you have to have in order to utilize an infrastructure service. And that is very commodity-like. And it actually performs as a commodity. And it's utilized as a commodity. And it may be used as a payment mechanism. So the gas fees is the classic concept, right? You, you, you're paying um, the use of, of, a, of, a, of a crypto asset in order uh, it's a payment token, and it's it's a, like a commodity at the same time. So it's like oil you can pay with. <laughs> um, yeah. You know. So the, the the definitions are hard, and so my view has always been that we ought to come up with new statutory definitions for digital assets, and and recognize the reality that they may have attributes of all three, 
And you mm-hmm. may need to have at some part of the life cycle disclosures, uh, you know, risk disclosures, other, you know, issuers should have background checks. There should be security audit requirements, all kinds of different things that are, I think, are specific to this new type of, of instrument. Um, and, and so I, I, uh, I think it's, you're correct in that it sort of doesn't seem fair, right? That the digital assets sort of are going, um, going on and it's sort of these gray areas and, and so on. And while over here, if you're like, you know, sticking to plain old fashioned, uh, you know, uh, preferred stock or whatever it is, then it's like this whole other universe. Um, mm. you know, uh, the, 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 the two should come together in, in my mind as well. I, I think that's, that's a vision of the future, which I'm pretty excited about. I, I'm super excited about, you know, adults who have had education, who have a license to partake in, let's call them, you know, new, risky, uh, avant garde, <laughs> untested, whatever, uh, high risk assets, just having some education, and then being able to deploy their capital as they see fit, like they do in Vegas, nobody in Vegas yeah. is stopping you from putting $10,000 on a roulette wheel. And they don't know your net worth. They don't, they right. might know who you are. If you bought over $10,000 in chips, they might not, you know? Yeah. But uh, you don't need a license to walk into the corner store and, and spend money on a lottery system, um, which, you know, the state knows is completely rigged and is basically taking yes. money from the poor. Um, you yeah. know, and, <laughs> you know, so we have to look at, look at this, uh, in a broader context. So let, let's dive into, um, Let's dive into the stablecoin stuff. Uh, there was a stablecoin called Tether. Uh, I think you know the story as well as anybody. Uh, created with a certain promise, dollars would this would be one for one stable to a dollar, and then they decided it wouldn't be. Uh, the New York Attorney General said they lied about that and banned them from using tethers in the global capital of finance, at least for now, in <laughs> New York City. Uh, New York State and New York City, uh, they paid some fines. And there's been this underlying worry that Oh, my God, they own a bunch of commercial paper loans to companies, and they only have a certain amount of cash low single digits, you come out with your own USDC. I've been talking about these things on the podcast, because when we see something like tether that people are concerned about, we, we kind of drill down and double click on it. USDC comes out and it seems like it's a lot cleaner and you decide at some point, you know what, we're not going to have any commercial paper. We're only going to have assets in there dollar for dollar. So maybe take me through your, maybe you could explain to the audience what the point of a stable coin is and then why you took the opposite approach of Tether or even more accurately took their original promise, which was dollar for dollar. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the first thing is just to explain kind of what 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 the goals are with a technology like this i think you know in in the founding of circle and our vision we envisioned that there could be you know an http for money meaning that there could be a protocol that anyone could connect to that anyone could transact with that was you know open and accessible so if you built a um uh, uh, a website anyone who had an http compatible device could get to your content um, this sort of idea of open internet protocols. But what if you could have a protocol like that for dollars on the internet? Um, and, you know, blockchain technology made that possible. So four years ago, we started working on this. And then three years ago, we launched USDC. And I think 
um, you know, the, the ultimate goal is that you have a transaction medium for dollar digital currency that can just work on the open internet the same way that we can exchange data and information and communications instantly, globally, frictionlessly, nearly free, point to point, person to person, business to business, any scenario that, that you'd want. And, and, um, we're, we're really making progress towards that. Um, there's a lot more you can do with it, but, but at a high level, it's just how, how do we establish that? So when we built this and launched this, um, you know, we wanted to do it under a clear regulatory framework. And there, and, and, and we had built up over several years, um, a position as a regulated crypto company. We became one of the most licensed and regulated companies in the entire industry. The first to have all of these money transmission licenses, the first company to have what's called a New York bit license, an e-money license in Europe, which are, is, is quite similar. And so we built out all this licensing, which is basically, um, the ability to store funds for users and facilitate payments. So the, you know, PayPal, Square, Stripe, these are the kinds of companies that are regulated under this same kind of regime. And USDC has been issued and operated in this way since it launched. So we're regulated by banking regulators throughout the United States. Those banking regulators supervise us. They examine us. The examiners come out all the time. They look at everything that we're doing from our risk management, our operational controls, our money laundering controls, consumer protection. Where are the funds held? Are they? How thorough is that process? Are they like up and oh, everything? It's, it's very thorough. I mean, you, you, you get these, you know, many multi-day exams that come through. Uh, so that's one that's a, a, a key piece. And we're, we're held to legal standards. And in particular, money transmission is specifically designed around the consumer protection mandate of a dollar being held by a PayPal or a Western Union or a Square should always be transactable, redeemable for a dollar. That's, that is a fundamental tenet of the consumer protection rules. And so all of the laws that apply to us and have since we've done this have a very, very tight boundary on what you're permitted to do with the dollars that the dollar reserves that that back an electronic money instrument, uh, similar to like a prepaid card or other things. And so th those are super tight constraints. So we've always had to operate within those constraints. We've always been more conservative than those even allow because stable coins are this new thing. And there is this overall kind of concern. There was always this concern with Tether as well. And so we've always operated inside of that. Now, this has grown incredibly fast. So the use of dollar digital currencies like USDC, it grew 10x last year on track to grow another 10x this year. From Why is it growing so fast? What, what are people using it for? Are these like, the analogy I hear is they're like casino chips. Instead of moving dollars from bank accounts, you just move a billion dollars in tethers and then they get burned or you move a billion dollars in USDC. And that's how you settle up between players. Well, so the, the first piece is, you know, a, a, a digital currency dollar on the internet is just a far superior dollar payment settlement infrastructure to anything that we've seen before. You can't, there is no equivalent to being able to directly transact with a counterparty, me to you, with, uh, with, with no reversibility. So I can, you know, final transaction settlement that can happen in seconds or less even, um, directly on the internet without an intermediary. That's a really powerful thing. 
And so the speed of the internet, the reach of the internet, the efficiency of effectively moving data, and that's just a huge improvement. Now, so to move a million dollars in cash would require involving a bank or two, yeah, wires, fees, yeah, and a- absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's three like, days. You know, we used to like worry about like long distance telephone calls, like routing between ILEX and different countries, and all the you know regulations and treaties to make that all work. And and then you can just do a peer to peer voice thing, and it's free. It's the internet. <laughs> so. I really view this as like, we're just upgrading monetary infrastructure to an internet native way of being. Um, so th- that's just like a general concept. Now, the, the, the initial growth in this very much has been a capital markets phenomenon. So you have, you know, growing digital asset markets all around the world. Um, and as they grow, once y- you start operating in digital currency, whether that's Bitcoin or anything else, you realize that when you have a digital currency, it's just way more efficient um, than than legacy electronic money or legacy banking and so on. And so there's just a preference to be native in that. And and then, you know, so people use it for investing, trading. Increasingly, you know, digital currencies like USDC are used in borrowing and lending that are done through protocols on the internet as well, what we call DeFi. And then what's been most fascinating for us is that they're sort of like these internal network effects. The more people who have it, the more useful it is. And so sure. p- people say, hey, can you pay me with USDC? Or I'm going to pay my contractors with USDC. Or I'm going to make an investment in this company using USDC. It's just more efficient. I want to hold my funds this way. I have more control. And so it has these network effects um, that are internal to it. And, and so that person who gets the USDC can choose to sell it back to Circle and get cash? Yeah. So the way USDC works is... Um, uh, you know, through Circle, through Coinbase, in fact, through many other exchanges as well, uh, people can redeem USDC and get a bank transfer, uh, a ACH, a wire, uh, all these kinds of methods. Uh, and and we we only as Circle we only um, uh, directly deal with businesses. Uh, so mm-hmm. we don't like as an individual, you can't come to Circle. Uh, you can certainly go to Got Coinbase it. or FTX or or you know, one of these other and know, so to, to get out of uh, USDC or a stable coin costs what you were trying to so you know, clear a 100 bucks. Yeah, we, we don't charge any fees to to, you know, mint or burn, as one would say, uh, right. USDC. Um, and that's that's well, if I was the consumer who got the million dollar investment, and yeah. I want Coinbase to pay me back, what would I expect to pay them? They don't charge a fee for that either. Yeah. Got it. So just whatever your bank yeah. wire fees would yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's 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 essentially the the, le- the legacy transfer is the fee, basically. Yeah. Um. So with Tether, and you know, listen, it's not your company, but Tether is running their business dramatically different than yours. And you guys are side by side. They have seventy billion or so. You've got I don't know thirty or forty billion. I don't know what the last count was. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and you've basically went from I don't know two or three billion last year to thirty billion this year. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, so our, our growth we've grown much faster than 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 anything else out there. So at the beginning of last year, I think we were like maybe five or eight percent of of what Tether was at like four hundred million in circulation, and and we 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 grew that to four billion in circulation by January first, and now it's like thirty three billion in circulation. And so we're approaching like 50% of, of Tether circulation. And so our growth rate, if you just look at it, is, is much higher. Um, You'll and, blow and past I, them. 
I expect that will be the the largest. I, I don't want to pick a time frame, um, but you know, I think part of it is that we see this as a technology that's going to be used by mainstream, um, you know, banks, financial institutions, commerce firms, e-commerce companies, neobanks, payment apps, like all kinds of different folks are going to use it. And you know, you have to have something that is trusted, transparent, regulated. Uh, to, to, to be a, a critical, you know, payment market infrastructure. So like, you know, main, mainstream corporations or financial institutions are, are not going to, you know, build on something, um, that is opaque, offshore, unregulated, et cetera. So, uh, Tether is offshore. Uh, management is not available to do interviews, certainly not available to do proper, uh, attestations or, or what I would consider proper attestations or proper auditing. Um, so I guess knowing your customer and knowing who's using these becomes the next thing that people have been debating. Okay. You, somebody buys a hundred million of these, uh, you hate to bring up the terrorist example, but that's the one that always comes up the worst case scenario or human trafficking. How do we know that people aren't using, you know, tethers, yeah. USDC or poker chips from the ARIA? Yeah, to uh, do bad things in the world, like pay for a terrorist to blow up a building. Yeah, I mean, I think what are the safeguards? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think there are a couple things on this that are really important. I think the first is, you know, the 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 innovation of digital currency, um, just like the innovation of of digital communications or or open internet publishing, um, definitely create new challenges for law enforcement. Right, terrorist groups can form you know, peer-to-peer communications networks over encrypted messaging apps, and they can go re- post recruitment videos on YouTube and, you know, and have yeah. and, and do all the time. Right. And, and so um, all, all of these digital technologies create new challenges for law enforcement. And in each of those cases, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a given, there's a get. And I think broadly society most societies around the world, and there are exceptions, you know, harsh authoritarian regimes being a, a very clear exception where they, they want backdoors and everything. They want to have, you know, these, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, firewalls that basically allow them to kind of see what every person in their country is doing. They monitor everything, that kind of thing. But in most free societies, um, society has elected for the openness of the Internet. Because it's made their lives better, it's made their businesses better, and that's been really powerful. And so I think the advent of, of digital currency and of economic infrastructure that's kind of native to the internet, which we're starting to see built out around these things, I think, you know, it, it introduces new economic freedom. It introduces more efficient ways for counterparties, whether it's a person or a business, to start operating with each other. And that's really powerful. And I think. I think that society is going to want to keep that openness uh, in the same way that we've kept that openness in the world of information and communications. But, you know, money is a little different, right? Money is a little bit different. The stakes are higher. And, you yes. know, you know the, yes. the stakes are higher because you know, financial intermediaries um, enter into a, a, they're licensed, right? So back to licenses. They're licensed because the risks to society are higher. There are, you know, the risks of fraud are real. The risks of money laundering and criminal abuse are real. 
Um, and, and, uh, and, and frankly, you know, there's, there's sort of infrastructure risks and other things, right? So these are very real risks. Terrorist financing risks is, is obviously, and, and sanctions issues. Those are all very, very real. And so there's been, um, huge advancements in how anti-money laundering, countering terrorism financing, uh, dealing with, you know, sanctions risk. There's been huge advancements in how regulated digital currency firms have to deal with that. Um, there's been international laws or, uh, you know, international rules that have been established that now almost every country in the world is enforcing. They're, they're saying if you're what, what in, in international parlance, uh, a VASP, which is a virtual asset service provider. It's like an internet service provider. You're a virtual asset service provider. VASPs have to register with the, the financial crime and money laundering authorities. They have to demonstrate that they have comprehensive programs to know their customers, to police for transactions. And actually, they have a, an obligation to report suspicious activity to the government. So that exists. That's pretty much the case now in most countries in the world. That's, that's, a, a common framework and and i think the 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 sort of next level is blockchain transactions actually pose some interesting privacy risks for people as well which is that unlike the banking system certainly unlike cash but unlike the banking system itself you know there there is no visibility into what's sitting inside of one bank's database or another bank's database or the movement between those databases, which is all that money really is is just moving records between databases. There's no visibility. It's all self-policing. It's all self-reporting. Blockchains, you know, there are super advanced forensics tools now. TRM Labs, Elliptic, Chainalysis. These are all like you know unicorn companies, and they're all heavily used by spooks. Law enforcement, government agencies, financial institutions, and every firm, every one of these VASPs out there uses these. And you can actually follow the money in real time. Mm. And you can see movement in clusters. You can see clusters of funds that look like suspicious behaviors and so on. So th there's an enormous amount there. And the, and the real risk is that regulations may create a situation where actually there's, there's too much PII floating around. And actually creates these an even greater kind of privacy risk for society. So I think one of the vexing issues in this space is exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, the, the downstream counterparties that you interact with on these open rails, on these open internet connections. And it really leads to, um, uh, I think the need for solving a problem that has vexed the internet for a very long time, which is that on the internet, no one knows that you're a dog. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, that still exists. And so crypto as a technology actually creates the basis for using cryptographic proof of identity, of claims about identities. And there are technology standards that are emerging around this and, and crypto wallets, crypto blockchains, um, actually are, are a new infrastructure layer that Allows for solving some of these, these, these digital identity problems, which I think can, can, can address those like more severe crime risk issues, but also can open up new capabilities for how people participate in the financial system. Let, let me ask you about the business of running a stable coin. You made 40 million in interest, I think, in 2021, or you have made in my notes, I see. Uh, and you've it's been a bit of a moving target. So I'm not sure when that number came from, but is the idea of 
uh, owning a stable coin is that, hey, you get to a billion dollars, you get to $10 billion, $30 billion, you get to get the float, the interest on all that cash sitting in a bank. And that's the business model that allows you to provide this service to the world. Well, so, I mean, there, there are kind of multiple pillars to, to how we think about our revenue and our monetization. I think one is operating this market infrastructure is a major investment. The regulatory compliance, risk, operations, treasury, all the things that we have to do, making it work on all these blockchains. It's a huge, it's a huge undertaking. And so, but we, we want it to be a general open infrastructure that lots and lots of people can connect to and build on. And yes, by operating that market infrastructure, and managing uh, uh, the, the the asset backing that uh, you know that digital currency, uh, we do generate interest income um, from it. And obviously, in a environment where we're in cash, uh, kind of cash equivalent, short term treasury type instruments, um, yeah, that's pretty limited. Um, mm. And uh, and and in some ways, our, our our business is 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 a cyclical business, like other financial services businesses in a rising interest rate environment will do better. In a, in a low interest rate environment on that particular part of the business will not do as much, but it's, you know, we're at 33 billion. We expect it to be hundreds of billions in the coming years. And so that could become a, a pretty significant business uh, for so, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think it's one that you should get paid for. And so the, cause you're providing a service and it's very difficult to do. And it takes a lot of expertise and infrastructure and support and regulation, as you mentioned. The incentive, however, would be for you to make more interest. I mean, there's two ways to grow that business. One, have more people use it. Seems like the one you're going after. The second is, uh, okay, let's take higher risk bets with the money and right. try to generate, you know, in, what, what well, are you This gets into modeling? regulations, right? This yeah, is, this you're modeling 1% uh, a return on this money, 2%. I mean, cash mm -hmm. is very hard to make money off of, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so... um you know, we, you, you know, what we had um, impl implicitly, it's like it's like definitely like single digits, right? So yeah. today, right um, now, th there are regulatory boundaries, like by law, like we we have to stay inside of what we're allowed to do under under the same rules that govern the thirty five billion that PayPal has in balances in in its system. And you don't look at your PayPal balance and think, is this really a dollar? Um, but they're 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 bound in the same way. Right. So now that's this is all changing really fast. And so we're, we're just we're bound by that. We're bound by that. We can't go and like, you know, trade Bitcoin or take the funds and lend it to someone against the law. Like we, we it's criminal violation. Right. So that's right. one thing just to be very, very clear. Um, and everything we do is in the U.S. regulated financial system. Um, and all of the assets are in the U.S. regulated financial system. Right. Now, so you're taking a very conservative, very intense, absolutely, very thoughtful approach to it. Absolutely. Now, it's it's. I think it's getting more intense though, because you know there's there's this work that's being done by the what's called the Presidential Working Group on Stablecoins, which is Chairman Powell, Secretary Yellen, Chair Gensler. Uh, and, and other agency heads and their staff, and they're coming forward with a set of policy recommendations for large stablecoin issuers in the United States. And, you know, there's, there's sort of rumors, there's been reporting on this, etc. But, you know, you know, what it seems to be is that they're essentially saying, hey, these are becoming so big, so fast, and potentially could be even 10x bigger than they are today. This needs to be supervised by the Federal Reserve. 
this needs to be supervised by the U.S. Treasury Department. Because of the scale of it. Because of the scale. It becomes systemic. It becomes something that if, if, if it's an infrastructure that tons of people are going to depend on, this is no longer just uh, you know, uh, your, your PayPal account. It's actually something more foundational. And right. so we have made a decision and we have communicated to the market that we're in the process of filing for a national bank charter, but as a full reserve digital currency bank. Where we, we, we are what does not, it mean? Well, so, well, so when you think about a bank, the bank's business model is taking deposits and then creating loans on a leveraged basis against those deposits, right? So there's a, you know, for every million dollars of deposits, they might create eight, $10 million of loans. Uh, that is money creation. So banks create money and they do that in the form of loans that then become themselves deposits and it's it's uh it's fractional reserve lending is sort of the 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 kind of defined model a full reserve digital currency bank would take those funds and hold them fully in reserve and not lend them Mm. not lend them um and and so it's a it's a much more conservative approach to this and it's i think appropriate if you're trying to build something that could be a generalized payment utility um, that could be used all around the world and 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 be known to be you know very safe mm. and that might eventually become the reserves are in fact what's called m1 which is electronic records at the federal reserve it could ultimately be that that may be where the regulations go but mm. and and uh you know we'll see but is that a good thing for you? Then you seem to be preemptively just doing it anyway. So you're making a very strategic decision to say, hey, there's this bad actor tether out there. I'm saying that not you, but there is this questionable actor out there. Everybody knows them. They're under all kinds of investigations, allegedly, and they have settled all kinds of things. They got banned in, uh, from working with the Canadian exchanges and they're offshore and nobody knows where the CEO is, yada, yada. So you're saying, hey, we're just going to go fully to where the puck is going. Even if the puck doesn't go there, we're just going to be over the top safe. Yeah, I mean, is that I, your I, strategy? I, I think, you know, our strategy has very little to do with what other players in the market are or aren't doing. Okay. Our strategy is we believe that this payment and market infrastructure is going to be internet scale. Mm-hmm. It's eventually going to be trillions of value. And that every business in the world and, 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 and every individual in the world is going to transact with this as a medium mm. of exchange on the internet. And it ought to be, if it's that important, it ought to be supervised by the biggest national governments. So, I mean, that's a, at a high level. Uh, so no like more commercial paper is the, basically the idea because commercial paper, explain to people what commercial paper is and why it's. Um, considered a red flag in some instances. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, all of this has to do with like liquidity and solvency risk and things like that, right? So a bank, the, the, the thing that most people forget is that, you know, a bank, when you put your money in your Chase account or whatever bank you use, and it says you have $1,000 or a million dollars or whatever it says, you, you don't actually have dollars. You have, a, you have an IOU. And it's an IOU that you could redeem for that much money. But the IOU is effectively you are lending to the bank. That's the business model. You are lending your money to the bank. And then the bank is investing it. And they're investing it 
in, in multiple times over by mm-hmm. creating loans. And in fact, they can do a lot of other things. Banks can buy commercial paper and they can buy sovereign debt and they can buy stock in companies. They can do a lot of stuff. They have a huge amount of capability in terms of what they do. And you are, are, are sort of trusting that because there are regulations on what banks can do. There's a ratio of, of the, the kind of, you know, outstanding liabilities that they have versus the number of deposits. And that's that leverage ratio. Right. And after the financial crisis, that came down. Your banks doing 30 to 1, and then it's like, okay, no, 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 no. This is going to be 8 to 1, right? So you have these leverage ratios. And then you have liquidity covenants, which have to do with what are, what are called um, the liquidity coverage ratios, or LCRs, and, and what are called high-quality liquid assets, where basically a regulator can go and say, okay, let me look at all the stuff that you got. Let me see what kind of commercial paper you have, stock and companies, debt from corporations, sovereign debt. Oh, you got a bunch of U.S. sovereign debt. You have cash. You have all these things. And then there's a score on each of those types of investments. Some of it scored really low. Mm. Some of it scored really high. And so you have to have a coverage ratio where in a stress scenario, which is a, a heavy, consistent, persistent set of outflows demands to remove money from the institution over a 30-day period, you need to be able to cover that. Yeah. And so there's a whole bunch of regulation. You got to be able to withstand the storm, the, the, yeah. the quintessential right. run on the bank. And right. if you're somebody like Tether, who owns a bunch of Chinese paper, allegedly, which they sort of admitted they own paper yeah. in China, that could be just absolutely uh, result in insolvency, and then there'd right. be some contagion. So let me ask this outright. Um, you're cleaning all this up, you're making sure that you're buttoned up. And I would, from the outside, seems like the most conservative version of it. Do you feel there's a contagion risk in the economy right now due to crypto? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one of the uh, top central bankers in the world, uh, Sir John Cunliffe from the UK, yesterday made comments like, you know, this could be like the NASDAQ in 2000, right? Okay. You had seven, you, you remember all this, right? You had, you know, you had, you had seven, seven and a half trillion dollars of value in the NASDAQ. Going into 2000 and 2000, 2001, and 75% of it got wiped away. $5 trillion of value got wiped away. And that had a shock effect on the real economy. It was a tech bubble, right? That then, mm-hmm. in fact, caused a recession, caused a lot of people to lose jobs. It cascaded into other sectors of society. And so crypto is 2.3 trillion. If crypto was 7 trillion, or five trillion, and it had bubble characteristics, and you know there's this massive, and, and it was spread. It does have bubble. It right. certainly has bubble characteristics. Yeah, so you have, so. you have the you know the it's in it's in household balance sheets. It's in pension balance sheets. It's in you know all, all, all these places. Corporates, you know, are experimenting, etc. So I think a, a close look at it right now would say that the actual systemic exposure is pretty limited. Mm. Um, because of the the concentration of ownership is actually much much narrower uh, than it's like, millions of people participating. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. Low millions are I mean, probably there's a million people are ninety percent of the ownership. Yeah, so if you look if you look at the co- wallet concentration, things like that, right? So yeah. so it, it it doesn't have quite uh, qu- quite the same, but it has characteristics like that. Now y- you can make an argument about um, 
where are we on the growth of this new economic infrastructure? Where are we in the growth of digital assets as a, a, a new phenomenon and so on? Just like the tech era, which was, you know, 2000, we were really early then. Right? Yeah. All the innovation hadn't too even early. happened, right? It was too early. Yeah. All the innovation hadn't happened. Now, no we, customers. I think, I think, you know, 2017, 2018 in crypto was a, a huge, was a big bubble and there wasn't a lot behind it. Now there's dramatically more technology and, and maturity yes. and infrastructure. And so I, I don't, you know, I think we're in a very real sustainable growth curve. Are there going to be corrections? Is the value right? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at something like Bitcoin, you know, we've seen Solana race up the charts, uh, become a huge market cap. Uh, and I've always thought that, you know, some of these technologies will look like CompuServe or AOL, you know, uh, Netscape, etc. Right. Or, you know, Macromedia Flash, which was the yeah. future of everything until it wasn't. Right. And you know, in other words, transitional technologies, transitional companies. Yeah. So does that mean if you and I are students of this, and we spent our careers in tech, that a Bitcoin or an Ethereum could be a stepping stone on the way to something much better or something more complete. Yeah. And if that does happen, unlike those technologies, it had shareholders, sure, it yeah. didn't have the buy in of a large group of people in a massive market cap. Right. So, you right. know, this idea that bitcoin could be hacked seems to has it hasn't happened in a decade so i don't know yeah. when it would happen so yeah. but there is some chance that people would fall out of love with it and maybe move on to the next one so wh what are your thoughts on you know this sort of overall ranking of participants and how quickly they change and the possibility that you know what it's i know i'm going to sound like okay boomer but some equivalent of a denial of service yeah. attack takes down a major cryptocurrency. It could be a 0.1% chance. It could uh -huh. be a 1% chance. I don't know what it is. But the, these are systemic risks when you have a decentralized system, correct? Uh, lo there's a lot in that question. Yes. Um, um, so I, I, I think, um, so I, I, I also, being a, a sort of student of internet platforms and technologies and their evolution over the past 25 years, right? I do believe that we will go through multiple generations of change in terms of the infrastructure that is utilized to build on. And Bitcoin is a little bit in its own place compared to Ethereum and other blockchains because Bitcoin has remained very narrowly focused on kind of doing one thing um, and, and being this, you know, non-sovereign fixed supply digital commodity money instrument. That's what it does. And, 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 and one could sort of argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or whether the world wants a non-sovereign digital commodity money. Clearly it does, but how big can that be? That's like one thing. For so much of the other stuff here where you're really talking about infrastructures, I look at these blockchains as operating systems. They provide compute data transactions and they're competing for developers they're competing for people to build apps and protocols and services on top of them and there's some platform wars classic kind of platform wars that happen you know everyone was building on wap and symbian and 
no one's building on WAP and Symbian, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, we we know all of these. You know, right now, a bunch of millennials right? are on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like what the was Symbian that? operating system? What's yeah, that? It was like the most <laughs> ubiquitous mobile operating system in the world. It was in all these handsets. It was going to be everything, right? Um, we built Flash Player for for Symbian, right? Flash itself, another example, right? So these these platform evolutions happen, and I think there's super intense competition right now for these third generation blockchain platforms. And that's, uh, you know, why you've seen the rise of things like Solana or Avalanche or many, many others. Uh, I I, I think you you see a lot of that. And that's competition for the operating system. This is like a new, you know, Web3 is a new infrastructure layer of the internet. And these are operating system competitions. And some people say, well, Ethereum has all these network effects. It has all these developers. But I think it's important to point out, like, if you look at the top 100 programming languages on GitHub, Solidity, which is the programming language of Ethereum, it's not in the top 100 programming languages. There aren't that many developers. Um, it is a vibrant developer community in this space. But, you know... It's nascent. It's it, still it nascent. Is, it is very, it's very nascent. And so I'm actually a huge bull on Ethereum. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I really do. But I certainly, from the perspective of history... I have no idea what are going to be the preeminent blockchains 10 years from now. No idea. It probably doesn't exist right now. What about Bitcoin? Everybody says Bitcoin is forever. Uh, you know, I've said like a handful of times, like, well, you know, uh, we had plenty of things that were supposed to be forever, like Usenet and Gopher and send commands and everything on the internet. And they didn't make it, but we did have Gmail. Uh, I'm sorry, email, uh, which has continues to persist as an open standard or HTTP. So yeah. do, where do you put Bitcoin in all of this, the OG, you know, store of value? Yeah. My, my, my own view at this point, and my views evolved on this over the years, um, is, you know, when, when, when we first got started, we actually thought Bitcoin would, would, you know, evolve to be a smart contract platform and it would evolve to right. where you could issue other tokens on it, like we've seen out of things like Ethereum and then other platforms. And, that didn't happen, um, but, you know, it sort of stuck to its guns, you know, or stuck to its knitting or whatever the right metaphor is. Yeah, both good metaphors. I think that has uh, served it really well. And so I think it, it actually is, in some ways, the most trusted infrastructure in this space. And it has a very specific design center, which is to be a non-sovereign, scarce digital store of value. Uh, non non government money that is you know censorship resistant and secure. I think that position is a strong position, and will continue to grow. Uh, so my my own view is that many many governments around the world will hold Bitcoin on their balance sheets. I think it will it will be uh, a much more widely held as a as a as a asset by asset managers and holders um, and. Uh, Which would mean, due to the scarcity, if 50 times as many people wanted to use this thing, it would appreciate yeah. in value considerably, and a million-dollar Bitcoin does yeah. not seem out of the I, I do not think that's out of, out, of, uh, out, of, out of question at all. The, the, the question, you know, you see the Ray Dalios of the world talk about this uh, and, and others, which is, but like, boy, if it got that big, right, governments would really want to kill it, right? Because that, then it well, actually China is, did. Yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, China... Uh, China did not ban people from owning Bitcoin. Right. They, they That's very next. clearly didn't. Yeah. Because uh, guess what? A lot of rich and influential people in China own Bitcoin. 
Of course they do. A lot of, a lot They're trying to get the money out right, of China. Right, they don't, right. they don't, so, when the digital renminbi comes out and they can have their money seized with one click by Xi Jinping yeah. or, or yeah. they can just have every transaction or, or they can have their dollars right. cut in half. Or you right. could be told, imagine you get told right. you have a million dollars in your account. You've got to spend yeah. 250 of a thousand of it in the next year yeah. or else it goes away because yeah, like, we have I, to stimulate the economy. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that there are going to be a lot of face the music moments for governments around the world in the coming decade on this. The China thing is interesting, too. I'm, I, I, I didn't realize they were up to like 75% of the hash rate. Um, and they turned it off in, you know, under 30 days. So fast. And it didn't skip a beat, did it? No, no. What and, does and that I, tell you as a technologist about the architecture? I mean, okay. it's, it's, it's super resilient. I mean, and there's been a huge amount of capital investment into diversifying, you know, the, the, the security infrastructure for Bitcoin around the world. It's been a massive and it's, it's sort of the ultimate arbitrage. Um, and, and I, I have other thoughts on this that, that are, that are, you know, I, I think potentially controversial, but my, my own view is that, uh, you know, Bitcoin will lead to some of the most significant breakthroughs in energy efficiency that can then be utilized more broadly beyond. How so? This, if this is the controversial stuff, I want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So? I mean, I, I think, you know, the incentive system is to have the marginal cost of the compute uh, and, uh, be as low as possible. So you, you, the, the, the security of the network, so long as you know, it, it, it exists and is, and is even static in value, but, but, but say growing in value, there, there is, a, there is an incentive to always get to the lowest unit cost possible. And the lowest right. unit cost possible is the least amount of energy cost. And so you want to get to the efficiency frontier of energy. That is actually the natural course of Bitcoin mining. It is to find the efficiency frontier of energy. And the you make more money, the incentive is aligned. And so the question is, is right. the efficiency in nuclear, you that's know, right. extra coal, gas, so, or so the you know, hydro, solar? If you ask yourself, the, the efficiency frontier of energy is the efficiency frontier of thermodynamics. And if you look at thermodynamics, that's, you know, you know cold fusion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, to to, to, uh, to, to come back to that. Um, and... And, 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 and hot fusion, right? It's nuclear as we know it. And my belief is that, you know, maybe even sooner, as soon as the next, you know, couple of years, you're going to see, um, significant, uh, efforts around nuclear energy security, uh, for these networks. Um, and wow. so uh, that's mind blowing. So you're yeah. saying somebody takes a nuclear reactor because France is going all in on nuclear. The United right. States is starting to change its tune. Right. Right. France is all right. in, has been. Germany right. shut it down, and now they're That's turning right. it back on because they That's realize right. they so made such a stupid decision. State, and you just place the the servers at the yeah. nuclear power and plant. You'll see state. You'll see governments operating their own nuclear wow. powered mining infrastructure. I think you'll ultimately see international treaties on this because of of, of some of the both energy and oligopoly uh, kind of considerations. That's I've, a I've actually, I've, that is I've, some I've, science fiction. I've I've said this for you know, for, for eight years. Um, so it's, it's a, a belief I've had for a very long time. It does, it does make sense that in the long term, uh, your position would be true in the short term. Yeah, people might burn oil or coal or whatever they get their hands on legally, illegally, which is what we saw, I think, in China was just people were like, okay, who can who can I hand an envelope to every month? Right. That would let me rack my servers here. 
right? Cold we're plan, now, great. Yeah, we're we're we're, we're now seeing, um, you know, the, the 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 sort of good actors in North America who are going way out of their way to to do energy efficient, carbon neutral forms hmm. of uh, of operations in this space. And so there's actually a huge amount of progress happening there. All right, here's a question from the audience. Why can't USDC show their assets like Fidelity, SPACs? And how does USDC handle KYC AML? I know your customer, uh, anti-money laundering. When people trade USDC in the second-hand market, would somebody on the Office of Foreign Asset Control list be prohibited from using USDC when they can just create a new private key and buy and sell to third parties? I don't know if I even understand the question. Yeah. You explain to me what that means. Yeah. It, it, my guess is this means like, can I take poker chips from the Aria and trade them in the parking lot? And then how does the Aria stop me from doing that? Yeah. So or a, a, a couple of things. So, so the, the first is, um, it, you know, we're providing, you know, un under money transmission law, which is how we're regulated. We're providing more disclosure than anyone else. You know, you can go read the T's and C's of PayPal and Square and Stripe and, you know, they're not telling you anything. So we're already going above and beyond. We are on a monthly basis laying out the categories of, you know, cash, treasuries, et cetera, that are there. Uh, and that's an ongoing commitment. Now, will, will, you know, uh, uh, under bank supervision, will that be different? Banks don't tell you what's on their balance sheet either. You can't go say, Hey, what's my JP? What's my JP Morgan Chase dollar? Um, because they're regulated. Uh, and because the presumption is that the supervision of the balance sheets is a job of the regulator. So they don't have to and the regulators do yeah. it. So, yeah. yeah so, I mean, th look, this is an evolving thing, like disclosure around reserves on stable coins. That's going to evolve. I think there's going to be new policy on it. We're probably going to learn more about what that looks like. You're starting to see that, that emerge. We'll do whatever is the, the right thing to do there. So clearly. you're committed to doing whatever the standard is. And if the standard yeah. is show us everything. Yeah. I, what's the downside to you? It'd be like somebody showing there's their not, portfolio there, construction. There's, there's, there's not a lot of downside there. Um, there may be, there may be, um, you know, proprietary commercial relationships in terms of what's there, but, but that, that's, that's manageable. I think, um, the other question is, is related to what we talked about earlier, which is, um, USDC behaves like other digital currencies. It exists on public blockchains. So circle, Coinbase, we have obligations as what I called before a virtual asset service provider. We are supervised by, you know, U.S. Treasury uh, around Bank Secrecy Act, money laundering. And we have obligations for knowing our customers. We have obligations to monitor their activity. Uh, if they're if they're sending funds in patterns or destinations or other things that are suspicious, we can analyze that downstream from us. And, and we will pursue investigations and we can obviously um, you know, as appropriate file, what are called suspicious activity reports. If there are, uh, you know, addresses on a network that, uh, the Office of Foreign Asset Control has determined are associated with, say, terrorist organizations, we actually have the ability to blacklist those, uh, so ah. that, that, that no one could, could send to those. And we've done that and that's public, uh, information. That was um, kind of my next question on this was, you know, at some point, it feels to me like the noose is tightening around offshore casino slash <laughs> exchanges because people can create their own exchange anytime they want with some software. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's certainly not uh, impossible. Is there going to be a time where you're going to just have to say, listen, USDC, we were told not to allow it on these exchanges and 
we're just not going to make it available for those exchanges in the same way Coinbase, I think, took down XRP. Am I correct in that one? I think they took it down when they had the SEC investigation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there, there absolutely are ways, for example, um, you know, within circle systems, we have the ability to block list destinations on the internet, mm. uh, that, that say are, are, you know, known to be, uh, you know, um, uh, high risk or whatever, mm. high risk exchanges, et cetera. Um, this is definitely an area that is evolving now. There's a lot more work to do here. And, and I, and it ties back to what I talked about earlier about how do you marry you know, privacy preserving digital identity technologies, crypto, blockchain, and these new forms of uh, open finance. Well, listen, Jeremy, uh, this was an incredible explainer. You answered every question. You had no fear of coming on the podcast. Uh, quite the opposite of the Tether group, which started personally attacking me. Uh, and full disclosure, like Jeremy and I are not like besties, but we're friendly, obviously, like we've known each other in the industry. We're colleagues, right? I consider us colleagues. I, I, think I don't know right. if we ever, Absolutely. we're industry colleagues, colleagues, but yes. we're industry colleagues. I would like to be friends with you. I'd like to, uh, go have dinner with you some night and talk about our families or whatever. But, uh, just so people don't know, I, we and you and I are not like hanging out, going skiing or anything, but we've known each other for over 20 years. That's why I said, you know, I give Jeremy the benefit of the doubt. Because he's been at this for, you know, over 20 years like me, and he's built real companies, and he seems to want to do everything in the book. Why would this person want to do anything other than do it by the books? And so really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, absolutely. It was a great conversation, Jason. And we'll run it back because I'm going to be speaking at your uh, your internal, I guess, event, and you're going to interview me about investing in startups and absolutely. syndicates and good I stuff. I can't wait. Can't wait. So I'll see you next week, my friend, and we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye. <laughs>